This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to be talking about uh, this idea, or, or I guess I should say asking the question, are we living to please Jesus, or are we just dying to please ourselves? So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to pick up at verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 14, and uh, then we'll kind of take this a segment at a time as we work our way through it. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, this is what it says. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord." Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and for the chance that you've given us to be able to take a look at it together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for just the privilege it is to be able to start off our week like this, to be able to gather together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to join our voices together and sing you praise, to to be able to look at your word together and meditate on the things that you've communicated to us in it to be able to partake in communion together and be reminded of the fact that you've united us together as one body because we're we're collectively united to you by faith. So, Lord, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful that our week begins with worship, and we're grateful for the privilege now to be able to look at the details of the teaching that we find in this portion of your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us clarity and understanding as we seek to read these things and understand these things, and we pray for your power to be able to implement these things in our day-to-day lives. And we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and for your love. And we praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day I was reading uh, a book that basically it summarized the, the history of the nation of Israel during the era of the judges. And that was kind of an interesting and strange time. Uh, it was certainly a, one, of the, one of the stranger times in the history of Israel in particular. And there's one statement when you read through the book of Judges and you get to a particular spot, there's a statement that stands out to just about anybody that reads that portion of Scripture, and it teaches us a lot about the hearts of people who lived during that era of history. And we're told in that day, this is the statement that's made in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the statement it makes. Everyone did what was right in his own 
eyes. And it's very hard to miss that statement because when you look at it, it has an emotional impact on you when you really think about it. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So what do you think about a statement like that? Like, how does that hit you? You know, when you read it, do you find yourself essentially cringing for the people that were living during that particular era? I know that, that when I read that, I, I cringe because I think, all right, that must have been a miserable time to interact with people, a miserable time to be alive uh, during that era of history. But then again, when I think about it, it sounds a lot like what I'm seeing today. And so I find myself scratching my head. I'm like, wait a second, don't we kind of do that? Like, don't we live in an era where, I mean, I don't know, are, have we gone as far as they did during that era of the judges, or are we working our way up to it, or, or you know, where do we land on that? Sometimes I look at a statement like that, and, uh, and I think, yeah, I think we're kind of living in it right now, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. I wish that wasn't the case, but I'd be lying if I wasn't willing to admit that. But then again, you know, I think about it like this, too. I think, all right, I guess I shouldn't be surprised when the unbelieving world acts like unbelievers act. You know what I mean by that? Why, why should it surprise me if someone who has no faith in Jesus acts like somebody who has no faith in Jesus? It actually seems pretty consistent, doesn't it? It seems like it, it, it makes a lot of sense. It seems very logical. I think if I'm going to be surprised by something, maybe I should be surprised by the fact that from time to time there are people who have no faith in Jesus, but yet I still see some character, I see some behavior that, that lines up with his counsel. That should surprise me when I see someone who doesn't profess faith, but actually seems to live in such a way that you look at that and you're like, wait, do you believe? Because it seems like you're acting like you do believe, but yet you don't. But that's not Paul's primary concern when you look at the portion of Scripture that we just read. He takes that one step further, and he directs his words here specifically to believers. He's talking about those of us who profess to believe in Jesus Christ. And, in, and when you look at what he says here, he's speaking in this passage about Christians who profess to believe in Jesus, and yet they demonstrate hearts that still seem like their hearts are aligned with worldly values and worldly practices. In fact, I think that should be the biggest surprise of all when someone professes to believe in Christ, but yet still aligns their heart with worldly values and worldly practices. And so, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, the big question that we're going to be wrestling with today as we look at this portion of Scripture is, are we living to please Jesus or are we dying to please ourselves? Because that's the question that Paul poses in this portion of Scripture. But let me, let me take this from the positive angle, at least for starters, and let me just ask the question, what can we expect to see in a life that makes pleasing Christ its priority. Because Paul starts off that way when you look at this portion of Scripture. And one of the things he tells us here is that if you're living your life in such a way that you make pleasing Christ a priority, one of the things that you could expect to see in your life or in the life of anyone who makes pleasing Christ a priority is that they would walk in love. That's how Paul describes it in the opening verses here. Let me reread them. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. It's a beautiful phrase, right? Be imitators of God as beloved children. And he says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, I want you to think about something for just a second, because I, I suspect that some of us probably have pretty similar experiences uh, in this regard. But do you ever feel like as a Christian, you're constantly trying to overcome some stereotypes or 
maybe characterizations of what people expect you to do and what they expect you to be like. And some of those stereotypes and some of those characterizations you look at and you're like, all right, that, that's like clearly a stereotype that doesn't necessarily apply to your standard day-to-day -day, uh, believer in Christ. I, I experience that frequently, particularly when I tell people uh, what, what I do for a living, particularly when I tell people that, that I serve in pastoral ministry, I immediately find myself, I actually like to get to know people a little bit before they know what I do, because I know that as soon as they find out what I do, I'm going to be plugged into some kind of characterization or some kind of stereotype that I'm going to find weird or I'm not going to like it too much. I remember a few years ago, one of our neighbors invited us to a birthday party for one of their children. And uh, so my wife and I, we went to this birthday party, our kids went, and uh, we were hanging out there, and it's an outdoor birthday party. It was a beautiful day. We're all sitting at picnic tables, enjoying conversation, and uh, they had music playing. It was a, a playlist that was primarily good songs from the 80s, and I, I was really enjoying it. You know, that's, that's a, a pretty foundational season in my growing up experience. And I, I was listening uh, to the songs, and I was singing along, and one of the people looked and were like, wait a second. How does a pastor know the words to some of these pop songs from the 80s? And in my mind, I'm like, what? Like, what planet do you think I grew up on? Like, I was 12 when this song came out. I heard it on the radio every day. Like, I know the words. It's like, like oh, I, I just, I'm just surprised. It's like, yes, as soon as I became a pastor, I forgot all 80s lyrics. <laughs> all of them. I'm like, that's it. I, don't want, I, can't, I can't sing this any longer. I can't sing it. But now, sometimes there's another expectation, there's another stereotype that maybe you've noticed, and, and you know, sometimes I see it and I think it's actually kind of accurate, unfortunately. But sometimes I, I think some people will look at someone who claims to be a committed follower of Christ and make the assumption that that person is going to be very harsh, maybe very judgmental, very harsh, that kind of mindset might, might dominate their thinking. They probably think, all right, the only thing I'm ever going to notice about you is I'm going to find out very quickly what you're against, and you're going to tell me all the time about what you're against, I'm going to have to hear about what you're against, and you're going to tell me what I'm doing wrong and what my spouse is doing wrong and how we're, we're operating wrong, how we drive wrong, how we eat wrong, how we do everything wrong, right? That's, that's what we're going to hear, right? Now, there's certainly a place to express corrective statements. And in fact, when you look at some of the other verses we're going to look at here in Ephesians 5, Paul very much does that, right? I mean, he, he addresses some things that he says, hey, correct this. If this, is the, if this is present, correct this. So there is room for that, obviously. But I love when this portion starts out, it, it talks about the fact that there's something we should be known for. Not just something that, we should, that should be known about us in regard to what we are against. He starts this off by talking about what we should be known for. And I think it's a very powerful example and a very powerful explanation that he gives us as he's starting this out. This is the template that he's trying to, to start with or the palette that he's painting from. As followers of Christ, we're called to be beacons of Christ's genuine and sacrificial love. That's what you and I are to be known for in this world. But you, you have to understand, we don't define love the same way culture defines love. So what, is, what does that look like? What does the love of God look like? How is the love of God demonstrated to us? What's Paul getting at when he's encouraging us to walk in love, to actually be known as a person who walks in love? 
Well, the example that, that was given to us in this passage, it actually points us back to the sacrificial love of Jesus. So keep that word in mind today, the sacrificial, or that phrase in mind, the sacrificial love of Jesus. We're told that he demonstrated his love through sacrifice. He gave himself up for us. That's what the scripture teaches. He gave himself up for us. He endured the wrath that we deserved. His life was given in a sacrificial way in order to bless those he loved. That's how Christ demonstrated that. And here Paul's saying, walk that way. Live that way. Walk in that kind of love. So as children of God who are dearly loved by him, I love how Paul even says that there, right? He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So as children of God who are dearly loved by the Lord, we're called to imitate that example by walking in love. And please notice that the scripture is not talking about walking in warm feelings, right? The one downside to many of those 80s songs that are still stuck in my head is that every time they talked about love, they're pretty much talking about infatuation, right? I don't remember too many of, of my favorite songs from that era talking about sacrificial love. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do remember a lot of songs about being infatuated with, with somebody. And I think naturally speaking, that's where the human heart tends to go. We drift toward infatuation. But here the scripture is not talking about this idea of walking in warm feelings towards somebody or walking in infatuation when it talks about walking in love. That's not the nature of the love that's being spoken of here in this passage. The kind of love that we're being called to walk in is the same kind of love that Christ demonstrated for you and for me, a sacrificial love. That's the kind of love. It's a love that looks at the needs of somebody else and attempts to meet those needs even at great personal cost to yourself. That's love, right? When you do what is best for somebody else, even at great personal cost to yourself. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. That's the way love is being described in this portion of Scripture and demonstrated uh, ultimately by Christ as the ultimate example of that. And I heard really, two really good examples of this lately, both of which warmed my heart. And one, I don't know, maybe this is going to be a theme today, but apparently this week, even when I was preparing for today, my mind was drifting right back to the 80s. So we're going to spend a lot of time in that decade today. Not really, but I do have another reference, I'll say. I was listening to a, um, an, an interview with several guys who were talking about a professional wrestler from the 80s and 90s named Bobby Eaton. Does anyone know that name? I will be highly impressed if someone knows that name. All right, one person, just Keith, just Keith, long distance high five, Keith. Thank you for actually confirming that I'm speaking of a real person, all right? And technically his wrestling name was Beautiful Bobby Eaton, all right? So you gotta, like, what, he, was, he, was a, he was a bad guy, right? But he wasn't really a bad guy. And one of the things, so Bobby Eaton recently passed away, and so a group of guys got together and they were telling stories about it, and they recorded it, and when I found out about this, I wanted to listen to it. So the other day I listened to this, and they told me something about the guy that I had no idea. They said, back in those days when the professional wrestling tours would tour throughout the United States, they would go all different places, and the guys were pretty much expected to, you know, pack your stuff. You're going to be going different places. And Bobby Eaton would pack all his stuff, and he would have like a, tra a large travel bag that he'd bring with him. But his bag was so much heavier than everybody else's bag. And finally, somebody realized why his bag was so heavy, because he would typically pack what he needed in triplicate. 
but he didn't pack it in triplicate. So instead of just bringing one set of, of, of uh, you know, wrestling shoes, instead of bringing one set of, of these, uh, you know, like uh, deodorant and, and toothpaste and, and stuff like that, he'd bring three. And the reason he brought three is because he figured somebody else on this tour is going to forget to bring something. And I want to make sure that I have extra to share in case they need it. So, all right, here's another name for you. Uh, one of the guys that was telling the story. Does anyone know the name? Chris Jericho. A little bit, all right, so that we're getting more into the modern era. So Chris Jericho was on one of those tours with him. And Chris Jericho forgot his toothbrush. And, so, and he was a new wrestler at the time. And someone said, Chris, you should talk to Bobby. If you forgot a toothbrush, talk to Bobby. He's like, I'm not going to talk to Bobby about a toothbrush? They're like, no, 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 trust me. Just go ask Bobby for a toothbrush. He'll be glad you did. And he's like, are you just messing with me because I'm the new guy? Like, is somebody, are you just trying to make me look dumb? And they're like, talk to Bobby. So he walks over to Bobby and he said, hey, Bobby, I forgot to bring a toothbrush. Like, uh, I was told to tell you that. And Bobby was like, no sweat, I got you covered. He pulled several out of the bag and he's like, do you want a blue or a red one? Do you want a blue? And he was so delighted to give that to him. And he's like, I've got other stuff too. Like, do you need, the, do you need toothpaste too? Do you remember the toothpaste? Like, I've got all that stuff here if you need it. And he's like, no, I just needed the toothbrush. It's fine. Do you need socks? Because I've got socks. And you look at that. And, and at the time, he was thinking, now, wait a second. Like, what, what's his angle? Well, like, what's he getting at? Why is this guy doing this? So why was he doing it? I don't know anything about Bobby Eaton's religious faith. All I know is that after he passed away, the main stories being told about the guy's life is that he had a habit of, so, of showing generous and sacrificial love to everybody that he worked with. That was his reputation. I thought that was really neat. I heard another story this week. A friend of mine, they, were, they have three sons. They were walking on the beach with their three sons. And it was getting chilly. And uh, they, they happened, one of the sons happened to notice a guy that was kind of on the edge of where they were walking, and it dawned on him that that guy was probably homeless. And so he broke off from the family group, and they're like, hey, where are you going? And he didn't say anything. He just starts walking over to this guy, and he gets over to the guy, and he takes off his coat, and he hands it to the guy, and the guy thanks him, and he puts the coat on, and then the son goes back to the family. And they're like, hey, you're going to be freezing. Like, it's getting cold now. And he said, yeah, but I think that guy needed a coat. I've got another coat. You know, I'll just be chilly for, what, a half hour? And then I'll be back in a warm car, and then I'll be back home. I think that guy's sleeping out here. And it was his parents that told me that story, and I thought, how cool is that? And so when I look at something like this, as Paul starts off this portion of Scripture, and he talks about this idea of walking in love, He's saying, listen, Christ came to this earth to demonstrate sacrificial love to you. He didn't come to this earth to get a single thing from you because there was nothing you could offer to him that he couldn't already have. He came to you to give you what you needed because it was the only way you could get it. You needed him. You needed redemption. You needed his forgiveness. You needed new life because you were dead in your sin. So he came and he gave that to you as a gift, sacrificially. And now Paul is saying, Imitate that. Imitate that. Could you imagine what this world would be like if we just collectively, instead of just doing whatever was right in our own eyes, we just looked at one another and said, you know what, today is another opportunity for me to imitate Jesus. I'm going to sacrifice something he's blessed me with to be a blessing to somebody else. That would be a culture-changing experience. And Paul's saying in the church... That should absolutely be the culture. As we interact with one another, as we bless one another's lives, 
Walk in love. And maybe you could even put in parentheses in your mind when you look at that statement, walk in sacrificial love. And then Paul gets into some, some weighty things here that I think are useful for us because he's trying to draw the contrast. It's almost like when you go through the book of Proverbs. Proverbs constantly illustrates wisdom and folly, wisdom and folly. So now Paul shows us the downside of what can take place if we don't take that advice. If we say, you know what, instead of walking in sacrificial love, I'm going to live a life that's centered around me. I'm going to worship me. I'm going to get whatever I can from this world, and I'm going to use it up. And whatever I can get that's extra, I'm going to keep, and I'm not going to share it. It's all about me. And he's saying, that's not the wise way to go. You're deceived if you think that way. And in fact, he tells us here, don't give in to deception. Look at what he says when you, uh, at verse 3. And I'm going to read down to verse 6. He says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Again, keep in mind, he's speaking to believers. He's speaking to the church. He says, as is proper among saints. And when he's using that phrase there, he's talking about anyone who believes in Jesus Christ is referenced in Scripture as a saint. He's not talking about some select group of, like some subset of super Christians. He's saying anyone that believes in Christ is ultimately a saint. And he's saying, what is proper among saints? Think about it, right? He says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or excuse me, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience. Let's pause there for a second and think about some of these things here. And I'll even say this right at the outset. Admittedly, I think it could be very difficult to think with a long-term perspective when we're facing so many present-day trials. And here he's talking about something I think is like the long-term perspective that you and I should have for our life. The direction our life should be moving in is toward Christ, not away from Christ. But I think sometimes it can be very difficult to think with a long-term perspective when we're facing a variety of trials. And I, I, I can tell you right now, um, just in my close circle of friendships, I have close friends who are experiencing major health concerns deaths in their families, financial concerns, and, and various family concerns that are weighing them down. And when those struggles, when those issues are pressing on you, I'm certain that there are those of us gathered together today and those who are probably accessing this recording who are going through a variety of trials right now, when those things are pressing in on you, it can be very challenging to think about anything other than today's struggles. But I'm grateful that the Lord gives us a glimpse of the future that's far greater than our present pain. And in multiple places throughout Scripture, including what we just read, the Lord speaks about our eternal inheritance in His kingdom. Isn't that great? You know, here He talks about this inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And multiple places throughout Scripture, this concept of an eternal inheritance is being spoken of. And that's something that's being held secure for all who have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. We have an inheritance in God's eternal kingdom that cannot be corrupted, it cannot be damaged, it cannot be stolen. 
These are things that are referenced in Scripture, and it's a powerful reality. And that's an inheritance that's only for those who know Jesus Christ. And as Paul explains in this passage, he basically says, those who still worship themselves and idolize the desires of their sin nature will not share in this inheritance. Why will they not share in this inheritance? Because they don't look to Jesus to be their Lord. They look to themselves to be their Lord. That's what he's getting at. He's saying, if you're still your own God, you're missing the point. If Christ is your Lord, then you're getting it, right? So why would anyone trade the opportunity to have an incorruptible inheritance, an incorruptible inheritance in the kingdom of God for a corruptible, perishable inheritance in the kingdom of man? Why would anyone trade? Why would anyone want something corruptible and perishable when they could have something incorruptible and imperishable? Well, the reason the human heart is willing to do that is because we are easily deceived. From our earliest days, when you look at the earliest chapters in the book of Genesis, you can see this as it plays out. From the earliest days, Satan has taken great delight in convincing us that the fleeting pleasures of this world are going to be more satisfying to us than the treasures of heaven. Early in Genesis, we see this. We see this all throughout human history as well. And sometimes even we as believers can fall into believing that lie. It's very sad. And how do I know that? How do I know that sometimes even we as believers can fall into believing that kind of lie? That the things of this world will somehow satisfy our hearts in a way that Christ cannot. I know that because we frequently give in to our temptations. That's the proof. And all of us have done that, every single one of us. And Paul lists many of the things we're, that we're tempted by when you look at this passage of Scripture. We're tempted to engage in sexual sin, in covetousness, in coarse humor, and in general just foolishness as he describes it here. And sometimes I think we're easy prey to give in to these things because there's a part of us that might actually want to be deceived. There's a part of us that just wants to be deceived. We want to believe that these things will bring some level of satisfaction to our hearts. And so we, we, we commonly find ourselves just drifting toward these things and drifting away from Jesus, and we start grabbing on to the very things that are trying to drag us down. And knowing that to be the case, you have the Apostle Paul here encouraging believers not to fall into that, not to buy into that kind of mindset. Because Jesus came to this earth, what did he come to this earth to do? He didn't come to this earth to push us lower. He came to this earth because we were, we were as low as you could go, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin, Scripture says. So Jesus came to this earth to lift us up because he knew the momentary and the eternal consequences of our rebellion better than we did. He understood the things that we weren't noticing and things that we weren't seeing. And so what he did was he reached into our mess and he convinced our hearts that the promises of this world are empty. And he offered himself as the solution to our emptiness. And it might take a while for us to realize that, that giving in to the deceptiveness of sin will actually just leave us feeling utterly depressed. But once we get sick of sin's aftertaste, maybe then our hearts will finally start to be ready to find the joy and the hope and the peace and the satisfaction that ultimately Christ supplies and so here you have the Apostle Paul encouraging us as believers, don't give in to deception. 
Don't let your heart become convinced that the things of this world have the capacity to satisfy it. Because if you're, if you're convinced that the things of this world have the capacity to satisfy your heart, then you will pursue those things. But what those things will do is they will drag you down. And yet Christ has come to this earth to lift us up and to draw us unto himself. And because we've been drawn unto Christ, there's a manner in which we're invited to live. We're invited to live in the light. Now, that sounds like a phrase that's familiar. You know, there's a lot of times I hear that phrase said, but what does that mean and what does that actually look like? Well, Paul describes it here when you look at verse 7 down to the end of the section we're looking at today. And he says, therefore, do not become partakers with them. So he's saying, don't partake, don't join in with those that are rushing to the bottom, right? He's saying, therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at, what, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And I love this statement in verse 10. He says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, I feel bad for kids living in this day and age for a variety of reasons. But when I was a kid, it was very easy to prank call people. It was very easy to ring people's doorbells or knock on their door and run away and get away with it ten times in a night. It was very easy to do that, but now with caller ID and with, with doorbells that take video, can't really do that anymore, right? So just a few nights ago, one of the kids in our neighborhood rang our doorbell and then ran away. And I'm like, dummy, it's a ring doorbell. So now I have video of one of the kids in our neighborhood ringing our doorbell and then running away. And the funny thing is when the doorbell rang, I didn't even get off the chair. I looked at my phone, I was like, oh, who's at the door? Oh, hi, neighbor kid running through my yard. I see you. So then I sent the video to all my kids, and they're like, ha, ha, and we're all just laughing about it. I'm like, you can't get away with anything now, right? So I feel bad about that. You thought I was going to say something really deep and spiritual, right? No, I just feel bad. You can't prank call people and get away with ringing people's doorbells without getting caught. You know, he's caught now. I, I have evidence of that. I'm gonna, maybe I'll hold on to that. I don't know. But <laughs> when you look at this portion of Scripture... The scripture reminds us that we used to live our lives like we were trying to get away with something under the cover of darkness. That's the, that was the pattern of our whole life. We were, we were living our lives like we were just trying to get away with something all the time. Under the cover of darkness, it describes here. So we thought we could sneak our way through life. We thought our craftiness that would just go unexposed as we walked through life. But that's not the case at all. Nothing goes unexposed, right? Scripture teaches that eventually everything will be exposed to the light. Everything. Everything that we think is presently hidden, everything we wonder about, everything we try to hide, it's all going to be exposed to the light. There will be no secrets, there will be no hidden motives, there will be no lying, nothing. It's all going to come out. And eventually, it's all going to be seen. It's all going to be known. Everyone gives an account. And then you look at our life and I think, all right, I would, I would hate presently to go through the experience of every bad decision I've ever made 
being just exposed all at once. So I'm grateful that my salvation is not based on whether I've made it through life getting everything right, because I haven't, and I don't think you have either. In fact, I know you haven't because I read the Bible, and it says we're all in the same boat, right? And so you look at that and you think, how wonderful it is to know that Christ looks at us and the condemnation that we were under, because we're all going to give an account, but here's the thing. We're not still under condemnation because of the mistakes or rebellion or the sins that we've made. If we're in Christ, what did Christ come to this earth to do? To take it all upon himself so that we could stand before the throne of God as one who is not condemned. We will either come before the Lord as people who are still under condemnation or as those who are not under condemnation. And the only way for that condemnation to be removed is to have genuine faith in Jesus Christ. But when, when Christ becomes your Lord, when he offers his forgiveness to you and you accept that forgiveness, the condemnation and the wrath that you were under, it's lifted. It's placed on him, so it still gets paid for. The thing is, he pays for it. You don't have to pay for it. And here Paul is talking about this idea that everything eventually is going to come out. Everything's going to be exposed to the light. But since we've been blessed with the light of Christ, since we've been removed from the domain of darkness, since our condemnation has been placed upon Christ himself, there's no need for us to live in darkness any longer. In fact, it doesn't even make sense. You've been given so much freedom in Christ. Why go back to the very thing he freed you from? Why welcome it back into your life after he paid such a steep price to demonstrate his sacrificial love to you, to take that condemnation from you? Why go back to it like you still want it? That's what Paul's talking about here. In fact, it's apparent from Paul's words that the early church actually used to sing about this. This is one of my favorite parts about being part of, of, of the church. I mentioned this even just a few weeks ago. But how many places do you go where people just all sing together? There's a few, but there's not too many, right? So I really like music. I really am grateful for our, our worship director and our worship teams here in our church that lead us in singing. I think they do a fantastic job. And I got to tell you, it puts me, our sermons here would be half as short if we didn't have good worship prior to that, because they, they inspire me prior to, to speaking and put my mind in such a good spot before I get up to this pulpit. So if you ever feel like a sermon is too long, it's not really my fault, it's their fault. Because they really get me in the mood to preach. But I look at that and I think, all right, the Lord has inspired his people to sing. This is something historically true. It's one of the things he's given us the ability to do. I think he delights in it. I think he delights in hearing his children sing our, our praises to him as we worship him. And when you look at what Paul says here in this passage, I don't know if you caught this when we first read it, but I'll point it out to us again. Paul actually is quoting something that the early church used to sing. We don't know the tune. It's believed that they probably took some of the words from the, the prophetic book of Isaiah and kind of blended it together into a song that they would sing during the era of the early church. It's also believed that they probably sang this song typically when people were being baptized as they, as they would celebrate the baptism of a new believer. But it says here, he says, therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Isn't that beautiful? So we don't know the tune, but that's what they used to sing. Those are words that the early church used to get together, and they would sing possibly or particularly when new believers were being baptized. Awake, O sleeper. What are they saying? You were asleep, and now you're awake. You didn't even notice what God was doing for you, and now you see it. Awake, O sleeper. You were dead, but rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You will live in the light of Christ, and you will reflect the light of Christ. Arise, O sleeper. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Our calling is to walk in the light, not to partner with the darkness. That's what Paul's telling us here. We're called to live the same kind of life that, that we would not feel ashamed to let others closely examine. We're called to be the same kind of person in private that we appear to be when we're in front of other people. And thankfully, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit empowers us to live that exact life. The Spirit of God empowers us to walk in the light. So let's wrestle with this, because what Paul's trying to encourage believers to do in this portion of Scripture, when we're looking at the second half of, of the book of Ephesians, he's basically saying to the, to the early church, he's saying, hey, early church, it's time to mature, it's time to grow up. And we should take that in a very personal way and not just say that was for them. We should look at that and say, all right, that's for me. So Lord, what does it look like for me to grow up in my faith now? What does it look like for me to actually be a mature believer? What does it look like for me to actually take all of this seriously and say, not just with words, but with my life, this absolutely matters to me. This matters to me more than all the other things that used to seem important to me. This is what matters to me, my walk with Jesus. So are we living to please Jesus or are we dying to please ourselves? Those are really the two options. We'll either die to please ourselves or we'll we'll live to please Christ by walking by faith. Genuine faith is pleasing to the Lord. In fact, Scripture makes it clear that the only way to please God is through faith. It's not going to be through the work of my hands that I earn His favor. It doesn't work that way. You can't earn His favor because we don't deserve it. But I can trust in Him and receive His favor as a gift And as I receive that gift, as you receive that gift, we can walk in the light of Christ and say, I'm done with the darkness of this world's empty promises. I'm done with it. I'm going to walk in the light of Christ. I'm going to rejoice in the newness of my salvation. I'm going to be one of those people that can say, all right, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, for the blessing that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this and to really think about the things that you're communicating to us here. Lord, we know that it's very easy for us when we look at the things of this world to find the things of this world very appealing. And there's a part of us that that thinks that somehow some void is going to be satisfied or some craving is going to be satisfied through the things of this world that you've listed in this portion of your word. And yet that's not the case at all. You tell us in this portion of Scripture, you illustrate it, but you you make it very clear all throughout your your word that when we partner with darkness, what we're doing is we're partnering with death. We're partnering with 
discouragement and depression. We're partnering with, with, with things that are trying to drag us down. But Father, we know that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into this world to lift us up. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were living as your enemies. We were not focused on the things that, that mattered to you. We, were, we thought we were awake, but we were very much asleep. We thought we were alive, but we were very much dead. And then you shine the light of your gospel upon us, and you warmed our hearts and helped us to see. You opened our eyes and enabled us to understand. And so now, Lord, we're in this spot where you're saying to us, all right, now you understand, now you've received, and it's time to grow. So, Lord, we pray that as we look at a portion of Scripture like this, that we would take that invitation and say, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to dedicate this season of my life to growing in my walk with my Savior. Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us that opportunity. We're so grateful that we don't have to rely on our own strength to experience that kind of growth. And we're grateful for the fact that, that in your Son, Jesus Christ, we have new life. Lord, we celebrate that truth today. We thank you for the encouragement and for the stern challenge that we get from a portion of Scripture like this. And we know, Lord, that, that throughout the rest of this chapter, as we, as we look at the rest of Ephesians chapter 5 in coming weeks, we know, Lord, that there are things that you're going to share with us here that are purposely meant to provoke us in a good way and stir us in a good way so that we walk in the light of salvation and not the darkness of this world's temptation. So, Lord, thank you for these reminders. Thank you for your goodness, and thank you for your love. And we praise you for all of these things. And we're grateful for the fact that you call us your children, and you invite us into your family where we have an inheritance that cannot be corrupted or stolen or destroyed. So we're grateful that you offer that to us, Lord. We pray that that would be something that we would welcome and rejoice over. We love you, Lord. We thank you for all of these things, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.